<laughs> and she would get the drum and then she would ask all of us to put our cushions on our head and to <laughs> dance around the room with our cushions on our heads. And she would just be fearless. No, she would say, Irina, I can see you're not paying attention. And I'd be like, what, what? How come you can tell I'm not paying attention? <laughs> but she could tell, and she would just keep working with us and working with us, you know. And finally, at some point, she would, um, she would let us go off to bed. And, you know, it was so amazing because it felt like she could read my mind. I would, you know, be sitting there, you know, with the Dharma talk, and it, it, her Dharma talks were not her best point. She was a brilliant, impromptu speaker. But when it came to Dharma talks, they would meander, and it felt like they would go on and on. And it just became the conditions for such aversion and irritation. <laughs> you know, and it wouldn't just be like our Dharma talks, which is so much like, you know, fit into 45 minutes or an hour. Hers were going for hours. And so, you know, when it came for the, you know, 9.30 and it would be, you know, her talk would end and she would, you know, and she um, would say, well, I can't remember now, whatever it is that, you know, the, the end or something like that. <laughs> and my heart would alight you know, with the thought of going to bed, and then she would say, get the drum, you know, and it would totally sink again. And by the end, my heart would be, would be lighter and more awakened with joy. It was amazing, that kind of, that, that support to find different ways to actually continue to practice, you know, when it was clear we couldn't sit for another moment. So that was just one of many, many ways that she kept supporting us to, um, to continue our practice and especially to cultivate joy, which is the theme of the talk tonight, is cultivating joy and cultivating rapture, particularly from the Vasudhimaga, which are the commentaries from Maha Gosananda of the Buddha's teachings um, several, quite a few hundred years later. So um, I wanted to uh, start with quite a moving experience I had when I was doing multicultural training in Boston with an organization called Divisions. And we did this training on looking at issues of um, racism and classism and um, homophobia and ableism. And um, at the end, and it was sort of quite a, an intense four four day training or five day training. At the end, uh, the leaders asked us to write what we really appreciated about each other person in the the temporary community that we had created, and so we, you know, wrote on little pieces of paper what we appreciated about each person and gave it to each other. And it was really interesting to me that one of the most common appreciations that I received was that people appreciated my courage. And it's really stayed with me because it was something that I hadn't really seen about myself. 
until they named it. And then I saw it more, and I've been able to appreciate it more. And I know that both Jean and I have also been acknowledging that for you, that we have really appreciated your courage in sitting here hour after hour. And so please take it from us as though we were writing a little I appreciate you note, you know, on those yellow little sticker notes. Um, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your courage because it takes really an incredible amount of courage to sit and to be present for ourselves. And as I was thinking about uh, this, my courage, and thinking about your courage, it felt so delightful. And particularly because considering our beautiful qualities is one of the conditions for cultivating joy and rapture in our hearts. So this is just a beginning, this acknowledgement. Robert Aiken Roshi says it this way, when you reflect the infinite number of happenstances that coalesce to produce you, then you understand how unique, how precious, how sacred you really are. Your task is to cultivate that pressured, sacred nature and to help it flower. So one of the ways that we cultivate our precious, sacred nature is to cultivate joy, to cultivate rapture. And just to start off from the beginning and to frame it, because some of you I know have asked in the individual interviews about, well, what is it about cultivating love and talking about may I be happy or even acknowledging my courage when I'm supposed to be non-self, you know, and how do those two things mesh? The qualities of the awakened mind, and we've mentioned it already, are the qualities of joy and luminescence and brightness and loving kindness and wisdom. And there's these two ways that we open to this sacred nature that we are. And one is through the practice of mindfulness, which is this uncovering, this uncovering of the, of the obstacles, this capacity to see what covers our sacred nature. And um, I'm reminded of a story, because I've just, actually, I haven't looked at it before, uh, this wonderful book, The Wise Heart by Jack. And right at the beginning of the book, he talks about um, finding this Buddha in Thailand. I don't know if any of you have read the book. And that it's this kind of, um, kind of pretty ordinary-looking Buddha that's in, that's in some kind of molding. And it's venerated not because it's an exquisite bowl, Buddha, but because it's so old. And at some point, it begins to crack. And as it cracks, there is this gleaming of gold 
coming from the inside. And so they begin to take away the covering and they see this exquisite gold Buddha. And that's actually the process of mindfulness, of this uncovering of the molding of the old defenses that we have talked about. The, the hindrances are some of the expressions of the defenses, the judgment, blame, and shame, shame that I talked about on the first night is another expression of that, that molding. And as it's uncovered, every now and again, right, we feel that brightness and that shine of the golden sacred nature that we are, that lies inside of us. And so, um, Mindfulness does this. It uncovers this beautiful heart that we are. And also, by practicing loving kindness and joy, and by practicing compassion and the other beautiful qualities, it's as though we were cleaning a mirror. And as we clean the mirror, the reflection of those energies awakens that golden Buddha that lies inside of us. It's like that reflection of those beautiful energies strikes the light or strikes the match or illuminates that awakened um, expression of our sacred nature inside of us. So when we talk about may I be happy, we're not emphasizing the, um, the creation of a self, we're emphasizing the cultivation of the beautiful energy of self, of um, nourishment and caring and kindness, so that it lives and awakens the kindness that becomes unlimited and unbounded. And um, so, the story that most exemplifies this unlimited and unbounded kindness is the one of um, Tulku Oregon Rinpoche, who is the father of Sokni and Chokinima and Mingo Rinpoche. And um, he apparently was this quite incredible being. And in the last days of his life, he was very sick and in a lot of pain. And he was... Um, um, sort of herded into his bedroom by his sons. They were all there. And outside of the house was a long line of people because just like the way we do interviews here, there was a long line of people who really wanted to interview him. And, um, you know, Sokni says that he kept, like, shutting the door and, and sort of telling people, no, no, you know, my father's too sick, you can't, you can't interview him, no, no. And um, Tulka Organ Rinpoche would lean out the window and see Sokni doing this, and he, he would call him up with his finger when Sokni glanced up and say, no, I want to see them because they need to see me. And he would sit by the window and insist that the people who were waiting in line see him. And in between one person leaving and another coming, he died. And I feel just so moved by that expression 
of a genuine compassion and generosity that is unbounded. It is just the response to life without it being about who was in the line, you know, or what their situation was or how badly they needed us. It is the heart that responds naturally and spontaneously in all situations with love and compassion. And that is our possibility as we dedicate ourselves to our unflowering and opening, or flowering and opening. And, um, and one, of the, one of the practices that supports this is the cultivation of joy or rapture. So the, um, the, traditional, the traditional 11 ways of practicing joy and rapture are wise attention, Two, remembering the virtues of the Buddha. Three, rejoicing in the Dharma. Four, rejoicing in the virtues of the Sangha. Five, considering our own virtues. Six, remembering our own generosity. Seven, considering the virtues of the Devas. (laughs) Reflecting on perfect peace is the eighth. Ninth, avoiding persons overwhelmed with anger. Tenth, reflecting on the suttas. And eleven, inclining the mind towards joy. So, wise attention is the first one. And wise attention is is what we reflect on. And really, just to acknowledge something that we have heard over and over again, but really bears repeated acknowledgement, is the, this heart of, the, of our opening involves the capacity to acknowledge the suffering that is in our lives and the suffering in the world. That wise attention is really rooted in the Four Noble Truths, which is to acknowledge that which is difficult and painful and acknowledge our reactions to it. Because it is in our attention to the suffering and what constitutes suffering, which is our attachment or our aversion, that then we can begin to challenge those or investigate them and in through that investigation dissolve them so that the mind opens to peace. And so really, as we talk about joy and cultivating joy, at its heart is not the avoidance of, of suffering, but rather acknowledging that there is suffering there and that we have the capacity also to cultivate joy to hold that suffering. So wise attention. Perhaps also with wise attention is really appreciating and contemplating the power of mindfulness to heal all that, um, all that is calling for healing, that's one way of talking about it. Or the other that we've also talked about is the capacity to witness and to be present for what's happening in our lives. Because, and you know, we say this over and over again, because we could say that the suffering that the Buddha talks about 
is not about being in pain or not being in pain, and is not about losing our jobs or having a job. It is really our relationship to it. That really, essentially, when we talk about suffering and the ending of suffering, we're talking about whether there is wise attention there or whether there isn't. That wise attention being the capacity to hold the experience with presence or to witness the experience with presence or, as you have heard me say, to come towards the experience with this intention of, honey, I'm here for you. Honey, I'm here for you. Even if how I'm here for you is not as fully 100% as I would like, I want you to know that I want to be here for you. That is wise attention, or, or some one way of talking about wise attention. If you happen to be more technical in the ways that you like to practice the Dharma, then another way of talking about wise attention is RAIN. Recognition, acceptance, investigation, and letting go or non-attachment. Recognizing what's happening, and then that invitation of allowing and accepting, and then the invitation of investigating, and then the invitation of allowing it to be part of the universe. And so, um, um, one of the um, one of my own personal practices around rain has been acknowledging recognizing the pain in my body. That's not so hard to do, recognizing it. And accepting it has been more difficult. And one of the ways that I keep inviting that is imagining myself at one of the favorite places that um, I visit, which is the Navarro River. And where, where I stand um, often go and stand and pray is this is a curve the river curves around and on either side of these beautiful redwood trees and then there is this fallen tree that that sort of is crossing one part of the river and I sit on it and it's hard and I and I I hold that understanding that just like there are alive trees there's also this dead tree, that nature is expressing itself in this myriad ways of live trees and kind of the softness of the redwood oak. And then because this tree is dead, there's no more um, of that soft fur around it, so it's just hard, so there's this hardness. And then there's the softness of the water. And it's like, arena. can I allow this pain to be like that hardwood? Can it just be part of nature in the same way that this fallen tree is part of the Navarro River and the valley there? And sometimes that kind of invitation allows for the accepting of, oh, this is how, this is how it is. It's okay. It's okay to be there. And in that spaciousness, comes that ability to see 
that actually it's not so solid. It isn't solid and it's changing. And that's the investigation, the seeing the true nature of what it is that is painful. And in that seeing, that that sense of, oh, I hate this pain, begins to fall away. And I'm not saying that this happens every single time. It doesn't. But it's using that rain, that kind of recognizing, inviting the creative ways that we find to accept, to investigate, and to allow it to be part of the universe. And um, I was really moved by, this is how Rilke talks about it. And the things, even as they pass, understand that we praise them. Transient, they are trusting us to save them. Us, the most transient of all, as if they wanted in our invisible hearts to be transformed. so beautiful that it it, you know because in that place of wise attention it in the beginning it feels like I'm here and the pain is there and then as we invite ourselves to open to it that relationship changes so that we transform together and we become a different world you know just as the fallen tree isn't separate. It's part of the same world. And the world becomes a different place. And that is why what we're doing is so revolutionary, because we are actually changing the world with wise attention or mindfulness. So wise attention. And then just to celebrate, you know, the moments that each one of us has had when our mindfulness has connected with our experience. And that touch of joy that comes from the connection, isn't it so sweet? It is just delightful. And I happen to love sweets and candy. I have totally rotten teeth because even as a kid, I loved sweets and candy. And the first thing I would do after I left the school, is go to the sweet shop right on the other side of the street from the school that I went to in London and spend all my pocket money on sweets and just totally give myself a sugar rush. And, and you know, so, that, so that's sweet. And, 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 I, and, and some of you know that. And so whenever I lead a retreat, I always have this very sweet stash of chocolates or sweets that you give me that I eat. (laughs) And there is something that surpasses the sweetness, and it is the sweetness of when mindfulness in its purity, when there isn't any craving or desire or aversion, when there is that pure witnessing of our experience, the way that that experience is touched and how the two manifest together, that is the greatest sweetness, the sweetness of wise attention. So then remembering the virtues of the Buddha. Now, when I first read this, I have to say that I wasn't that that intrigued, and I skipped over it because it 
really, I haven't in any of my Dharma talks of them, probably thousands I've heard over these last um, 30 years, have heard a Dharma talk that's included the virtues of the Buddha. And so I skipped over it. And then I watched myself skip over it. And I was like, wow, okay, let's go back and let's actually take this as a new practice and contemplate the virtues of the Buddha. So I would like to read a little bit of what the virtues of the Buddha are as outlaid. And there are actually many, 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 many pages in the Visuddhimagga of this. But this is a little bit of um, an hors d'oeuvre of some of the virtues of the Buddha. He is accomplished. He stands utterly remote and far away from all defilements. They can't come near him. So that that's kind of might seem prosaic. And so I want to acknowledge that we know in our communities that there have been some amazing meditation masters. You know, whether it's... Um, Katgari Roshi in the Zen community, or um, Kalu Rinpoche, or Sogyal Rinpoche. Um, there have been amazing meditation masters who in some place, and often it's been around sexuality, have allowed the defilements to come close. So to say that here is a man or a being, because I don't think gender is important here. Here is a being who stands utterly remote and far away from all defilements, and that they can't come near him. Contemplating that purity is the grounds for great joy. The defilements are destroyed by his path. He has rightly gone without going back to the defilements. He has worked for the welfare and happiness of the world without deviating into eternalism of an unchanging soul or spirit or annihilation, negating continuity. Also, such speech the Buddha knows to be untrue and incorrect, conducive to harm and displeasing, and unwelcome to others, he does not speak. And such speech he knows to be true and correct, but conducive to harm and displeasing and unwelcome to others, he does not speak. And such speech he knows to be true and correct, conducive to good, but displeasing and unwelcome to others, he knows the time to expound. And what he knows to be untrue and incorrect and conducive to harm, but pleasing and welcome to others, he does not speak. And such speech he knows to be true and correct, conducive to good and pleasing and welcome to others, he knows the time to expound. He is sublime because of enunciating rightly. It's very, very profound, isn't it, to think of a being who only speaks truly and appropriately when it will bring healing. It's very, it's it's almost unthinkable because it's so unusual. He knows all beings' habits, tendencies, temperaments, 
knows them with a little dust in their eyes and a lot of dust in their eyes, with keen facilities and dull, good behavior and bad, easy and hard to teach. Thus the world of beings is known to him in all ways, and he teaches by means of here and now. So um, just to mention... Um, Just to mention a story that really moved me, that I've contemplated a lot about the ways that he knew how to teach people. During his time, some monks came to him and said to him, you know, Lord, there is this monk who is so stupid, he can't recite the Dharma, he can't recite the suttas, he can't even practice. And, you know, We have asked him to sweep, which is the simplest of the tasks, and he can't even do that. And so we want you to ask him to leave. And so the Buddha asked this monk to come to him. And he, because he had this capacity, he saw that in a previous lifetime, the monk had been a goldsmith. And so he gave a monk, because Jean talked about it yesterday, so I I thought about it. He He gave the monk this white cloth. And then he gave, he gave the monk a coin, and he said, I just want you to rub this coin and look at this cloth. That's all you need to do. And so the monk could do that. So he got this coin, and he rubbed it and rubbed it and rubbed it and just looked and rubbed it and looked. And he got that nothing was permanent, that the cloth was dirty and had lost its whiteness and that everything was actually impermanent and he awakened to full enlightenment. <laughs> we have hope. I guess <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll just read this, this last section. He has abolished all hundred thousand kinds of trouble, anxiety, and defilement described as greed, hatred, and delusion, and as misdirected attention, and as consciousness, as shamelessness, as anger and enmity, as contempt, and domineering, as envy, avarice, deceit, fraud, obduracy, presumption, as pride, haughtiness, as vanity, as negligence, as craving, ignorance, as the three roots of the unprofitable kinds of misconduct, defilement, stains, fictitious perceptions, applied thought, floods, bonds, bad ways as the five wildernesses of the heart, all the hindrances, and the 108 ways of behavior of craving. That is to say, the defilements and the aggregates and karmic formations. He has rejected all of these becomings. So there have been times, because some of you know and some of you might not, that I, I have lived with insomnia. It's one of the things that um, I used to really suffer around, and now it's more like this is how it is. And so I actually practiced this when I was reading the Vasudhimagra. And I was like, okay, let's see what happens when I contemplate those beautiful qualities of being free of all the defilements. 
And you know, sometimes it so quieted the mind that I found myself going into sleep. So it works, <laughs> contemplating the virtues of the Buddha. And then... <laughs> Contemplating the virtues of the Dharma. So just to, um, we're, we're practicing, we know it already. The virtues of the Dharma are described as sila, samadhi, and panya, to acknowledge the incredible blessing of an ethical practice. And um, for that, I wanted to read this poem. I just came across it, and it's, what happens when there isn't an ethical practice? It's by Robert Haas, and it's in um, his own handwriting, so there are a couple of words I, don't, I couldn't read, but um, here it is. Beauty is... Sec- it's, it's too dedicated to Ezra Pound's proposition. Beauty is sexual, and sexuality is the fertility of the earth. And the fertility of the earth is economics, though there is no recommendation for poets on the subject of finance. I thought of him in the thick heat of the Bangkok night. Not more than 14, she saunters up to you outside the Shangri-La Hotel and says, in plausible English, how about a party, big guy? Here is more or less how it works. The World Bank arranges the credit and the dam floods 300 villages and the villages find their way to the city where their daughters melt into the teeming streets. And the dam's great turbines, beautifully tooled and built in London or Dresden or Detroit, financed by Lazard Frere's of Paris or the Morgan Bank in New York, enabled by judicious gifts from Bechtel of San Francisco or Halliburton of Houston to the local political elites, spun by the force of rushing water, have become, I can't read the word, of shimmering silver and downriver they throw the bluish throb of light across her cheekbones and her lovely skin. So acknowledging the reality of the world when there isn't an ethical practice, it is profound. And in acknowledging that reality, acknowledging the profound gift of sila, of an ethical practice. In fact, the Buddha says that one of the greatest ways for us to cultivate joy is to see our ethical practice. And he says, and I can't remember in which sutta, I have to, I have to remember um, to check which sutta it is. He says in the sutta, go into the marketplace. And the equivalent of that for us would be, so put on the news on TV or open your newspaper and see how someone has killed another person. And then go back to your room, and he says this, and sit on your bed and contemplate that you have not killed someone. And take joy in that, that you have refrained from killing someone. 
And let's just acknowledge how it isn't, the killing isn't even that far away. But in our schools in Columbine, there are in families like our families, kids who have taken up a gun. See the integrity of your heart that you haven't taken up a gun and killed anyone and take joy in it. And then the Buddha says, go back into the marketplace and see how someone has stolen something from someone else, has stolen money or a belonging from another person. And then go back to your room and sit on your bed and contemplate that you have not stolen money, that you have not flooded 3,000 villages with water and displaced people. Take joy in this contemplation and really see your goodness. That's what Robert Akin was saying when he said, um, understand how precious and sacred you really are. See the ways you have flowered and supported your preciousness in the fact that you haven't stolen. And then the Buddha says, go back and see how their people have been harmed, have been raped, have, how there has been adultery. And then go back and see how you haven't done that. And, and take joy in that. See your goodness and have joy in your goodness. And then go back into the marketplace and see how much gossiping and lying and backbiting there is. And then see how often you speak the truth and how you have refrained from doing that. Even if it's just once that you have held your tongue and not said something because you saw that it was negative or that it might be harmful. And really take joy in that. And then finally, see how many people are drunk. And you know, as I say that, I remember when I was in the monasteries in Australia a number of years ago, I left the monastery to go to the Gay Pride March in, um, in Sydney, and I was shocked at the level of alcohol that was consumed on that Gay Pride March because at the end of it, all strewn along the path, there were people totally unconscious on the road. I mean, lots of people unconscious on the road and, you know, lots of bottles of hard liquor on, on, on the streets. And I was like, oh, my God. They, they celebrated gay pride as a drunken party rather than really celebrating the beauty of our own particular expression of life. And it was so disappointing. And so the Buddha says, see that where that happens and see how you are working and practicing on refraining from drinking, getting drunk, or perhaps you don't do it at all and celebrate that. So it is um, the practice of um, the celebrating the practice of the Dharma is celebrating our own virtue. And it's a practice. And he says, do it before you go to bed at night contemplate when you are like feeling so messed up that you have been 
refraining so beautifully and brilliantly from breaking um, or, or um, I don't want to, from um, that you've been practicing living ethically. So, um, and then um, I'm not going to go on a whole lot because um, about this part of um, of the of the actual meditation practice because um, I'm going to talk about that a bit more tomorrow morning. So um, I wanted to also talk about rejoicing in the sangha because this is one of the places where I've practiced a lot in terms of cultivating joy is really putting my mind on the beautiful qualities of some of the teachers that we've had in our lives and just reflecting on their struggles and their capacity to practice and how enormously supportive it is for us. And one of the people that I've spent a fair amount of time resting my mind on is Deepama. Um, have, do some of you know her, the book Knee Deep in Grace, the stories of Deepama, I highly recommend it because um, she's considered, there's a picture of her in the hut, you know, in the hut as you go down the path of all our teachers. She's a small woman with great big, um, there's a picture of her with great big black glasses. And um, she lived in, you know, just in in, uh, two rooms, very simply, and was a very, very amazing being. And one of the stories that really struck me is she didn't have a lot of money. Is that a young man came to visit her, a Jewish man, and um, had mentioned that his mother was very upset because instead of going to medical school, he was uh, hitching around India. And his parents had worked hard to send him to school, and they were really disappointed because for them sending their son through school and then on to university to be a doctor felt like the essence of success and a kind of justification for all their hard work. And he had talked about it, you know, somewhat flippantly. Anyway, he left, and then he came back again. And meanwhile, someone had given Deepa Dana, and she had stashed it under her mattress And when he came back to visit her, she said, after they had greeted each other, just wait a minute. And she went and she got her dana and gave it to him and said, take this and buy a present for your mother that she feels your love. And again, a mind and a heart that is just spontaneously directed towards the well-being of all beings, you know, even someone's mother. And that incredible generosity of just being able to give freely what one has. Resting our minds on stories like that, on teachers like that, and contemplating it. In fact, the Buddha says you can spend hours contemplating the beautiful qualities of our teachers and other members of our Sangha. So, um, rejoicing in those virtues. And then he says, 
consider your own virtue. Consider your own virtue, your beautiful qualities. We have reflected back to you your courage. And it's something that we don't do. And the exercise that I came up with is if you imagine your friends and family coming together for your memorial service. You know, it's a time when we often acknowledge what's wonderful about a person. And too bad we do it after they've died. You know, instead of wow, we should all of us have uh, uh, the equivalent of a memorial service every 10 years at least where everyone comes and tells us how brilliant we are. So consider this for a moment. And what would people say about you? You know, and it could be something as simple as, my friend Jean has a great sense of dress. You know, as she does. You know, and she wears really nice clothes. And I look at her and I enjoy it. You know, she has a delightful sense of dress. <laughs> it's pretty simple. You know, or, wow, she really knew how to sing, and it was such a delight. Or dance. She loved dancing, and I would watch her dance and get so much joy watching her dance. Or he had such a beautiful way of talking about things. Or he was so generous. You know, or she was so kind and took care of her parents, or whatever. What would it be for you? What would those who live with you and work with you say about you? Take it to heart, because the Buddha says it's really important to contemplate your beautiful qualities and to have them be alive in your life and in your practice, and that when we do, joy arises. So um, <laughs> one of the things that comes to me is that an, a number of years ago I was walking along the beach, and you probably all have experienced this too, where you see all these jellyfish that have been brought up by the waves and are stranded on the beach. And so I was walking actually with my ex, Jean, and I know. So this was a number of years ago. And I just felt so sad that these jellyfish would die, that I would take these two sticks and take the jellyfish and put them back in the water. You know, and my, and, and, um, and my ex was like, you know, that is ridiculous, Arena. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe it was, but there was, there was something about that generosity of spirit you know, that sees something and is moved to address it, that is really beautiful that each one of us has. So acknowledging your generosity particularly, and it can be as simple as tonight, thinking about the times when you kept the door open for someone who was coming in behind you, or when you were in the dining room and there's that kind of rush to get the tea, you know, <laughs> how you stepped aside and let someone rushing rush ahead. <laughs>
you know, or whether it, when you, um, you were, you know, waiting here to move out of the room, you, you just let someone go in front of you. you know, or just how you saw someone who was having a hard time and you wished them well. See your generosity. One of the places where, and there's some places where, you know, um, it's harder to give. One of the places where I love giving is sharing food. I love sharing food with people. You know, when people come to visit me, I, I always plaster them with something, you know, whether it's crackers and bread and jam or whether it's some of the chocolate that people have given me or anything. There is such a joy in sharing food and cooking and sharing food. And maybe that's something that you also enjoy, or maybe you have something else where you find you are particularly generous. Consider your generosity, the Buddha says. So then um, I'm going to stop here because you all have been diligently listening to, um, to these um, practices as a way to develop rapture. Let me, without going into them, um, uh, just a nan- uh, name, reflecting on perfect peace. It could be that you read passages or poetry of the description of a mind that's in perfect peace and you reflect on it. Or you take moments where you have experienced peace and you reflect on it. Avoiding, avoiding places where there is very intense negative energy. And lastly, inclining the mind or just inviting yourself towards joy just it, it's that incli- inviting the mind to see and to experience joy and rapture this is what thomas merton says then it was as if i saw the secret beauty of their hearts the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality, the person each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that would we the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So let's take a moment and um, let's take a moment and sit together. <laughs> 